I don't know if you've ever paid much attention to uh, epitaphs, things that are written on tombstones. It's actually been a conversation in our family one time. It was going to be, what do you want on your tombstone when you die? Well, if you were from uh, northern Illinois where they actually have tombstone pizza, our answer was always sausage and mushrooms. <laughs> but, you know, we did talk about that. What would you like to have put on your tombstone someday when you die? And, and my kids, I don't know where they get this, but they want to put dad still crazy after all these years. Uh, but I, I began to think about that. What would I like to have on my tombstone? I'm not going to tell you exactly what it is, but I'm going to share a few that I found. Here lies my wife, here lies she, hallelujah, hallelujah, I am free. That was on some guy's tombstone in England. How about this one? I told you I was sick. That was on his tombstone. The children of Israel wanted bread, and the Lord sent them manna. Old clerk Wallace wanted a wife, and the devil sent him manna. Here lies the body of Jonathan Blake, stepped on the gas instead of the brake. Okay, summary of his life. Here lays Butch. We planted him raw. He was quick on the trigger, but slow on the draw. Now here's somebody who didn't really, there was no name or anything on it. This is the only thing he said on a tombstone. I was somebody who is of no business of yours. That's pretty anonymous, huh? Here lies the body of our Anna done to death by a banana. It wasn't the fruit that laid her low, but the skin of the thing that made her go. And I like this one. Here lies Ezekiel Akel, age 102. The good die young. Now, I don't know what's going to be on your tombstone someday. Your name, probably, the date of your birth, the date of your passing, and then you got that dash, which is really your life. You know, on mine, I'd probably want to see something like, you know, see the vision, live the mission, feel the passion. But there's another one I would refer to you to. It's in your message outline in your worship folder. It's the words from Acts chapter 13, 36. It says, David served God's purpose in his generation. Wouldn't that be a wonderful thing to see on your tombstone someday that John served God's purpose in his generation? Joan served God's purpose in her generation. But what happens if you don't understand God's purpose? What if you don't know the purpose of life? In Ecclesiastes chapter 1, if you've got your Bible, you know, the first chapter is called Everything is Meaningless. Let me just give you some problems if you don't know the purpose of life. In Ecclesiastes chapter 1, first of all, if you don't understand the purpose of life, life is going to seem pretty useless. Listen to this, verses 2 to 4. Everything is meaningless, completely meaningless. What do people get for all their hard work under the sun? Generations come, generations go, but the earth never changes. If you don't understand the purpose of life, life seems pretty useless. Here's another one. I'm going to read verses 5 to 8. The sun rises, the sun sets, then hurries around to rise again. The wind blows south, the wind blows north, around and around it goes, blowing in circles. Rivers run into the sea, but the sea is never full. Then the water returns to the river and flows out again to the sea. Everything is wearisome beyond description. Now, what Solomon is saying again, if you don't understand the purpose of life, life actually seems pretty tiresome. I mean, think about that. There's no purpose. 
pretty tiresome life. Here's the third thing if you don't understand the purpose of life. Life will seem unfulfilling to you. In verses 8 and 9, it says, No matter how much we see, we're never satisfied. No matter how much we hear, we're not content. History merely repeats itself. It has all been done before. Nothing under the sun is truly new. So again, if I don't understand the purpose of life, life seems pretty unfulfilling. I'm just kind of like, why bother? Here's another one in verse 11 of chapter 1. We don't remember what happened in the past, and in future generations, no one will remember what we're doing now. I mean, if we don't understand the purpose of life, life seems pretty insignificant. And I think most of us would like to feel significant. Here's the fifth one. Life seems uncontrollable. If you don't know the purpose of life, everything seems uncontrollable. Verse 15 of chapter 1. What is wrong cannot be made right. What is missing cannot be recovered. That's pretty dismal stuff, isn't it? You say, why is that book of the Bible? Why don't we just pitch that one out? Can we tear those pages out? Well, actually, Solomon gets around to explaining what the purpose of life is, but he starts out by saying, if you don't know the purpose of life, the purpose of God, man, life is pretty miserable. In fact, as I was looking through it, it kind of struck me that those five themes, life is useless, life is tiresome, life is unfulfilling, life is insignificant, life is uncontrollable, those are the themes of today's popular books, movies, and television shows. Do you know that? Check it out. Look at the current movies. Look at the current popular books, television shows. It basically says life is useless, tiresome, unfulfilling, insignificant, and uncontrollable. What are you going to do? See, without a purpose, life is pointless. Forty-five years ago, a man by the name of Hugh Moorhead began writing to famous philosophers and scientists and authors, and he asked them a simple question, what is the purpose of life? The responses were depressing at best. I could read you a whole long list, but I don't want to depress you. Let me just give you a few examples as we go back. All he said was, what is the purpose of life? Isaac Asimov, who's a famous science fiction writer, said, as far as I can see, there is no purpose to life. Arthur Clarke said, I'm afraid I have no concrete ideas of the purpose of life. Albert Ellis says, as far as I can tell, life has no special or intrinsic meaning or purpose. Edward Gorney says, I doubt that there is a purpose to life. And William Gasp said, there is no meaning to life. Man, those are tragic statements. I mean, I feel sorry for this. I almost cry when I read people say stuff like that because life without a purpose is, is, is a life not worth living. And that may partly explain today why suicide is the number two killer of teenagers in America. I mean, after all, what is the purpose of hanging around if there's no purpose to life? I mean, why not check out? After all, if, if you take God out of the equation, your options are pretty limited. There's another British philosopher, his name is Bertrand Russell. He was an avowed atheist. And, and one thing I actually admire about him is his intellectual honesty. He said, unless you assume a God, the question about life's purpose is meaningless. Now, in other words, friends, if you don't accept that God exists, you're on a dead-end street. 
The conclusion is very simply this. If there is no God, we're going to take this premise this way. If there is no God, then you are just a random accident. You are a freak of the evolutionary chain. You just happen to be a higher form of some monkey or something. Because if you're not created by God, then your life doesn't matter. There's no significance to your life. And so why should we ever care that you live or die or even how you live or how you die? That's why atheistic humanism is intellectually bankrupt. I, I sent a note out to a few of you. I, I want to suggest that some of you actually take the time to go see a movie. It's called Expelled. It's playing at the local theater right now. It kind of attacks atheistic humanism. Nancy and I went and saw the movie Friday afternoon. But atheistic humanism says that you come from nowhere and you're going nowhere. But then they actually have the, have the guts to go on and say, but while you're alive, you have dignity and value. I, 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 there's something wrong with that picture. It doesn't make sense because if there is no God, and if you're just a freak of evolution, and if there's no afterlife of heaven, no afterlife of hell, then your life has no meaning. You absolutely do not matter. We shouldn't care about you because you're really nothing more than a high form of cell life. That's why it's extremely important that we who call ourselves Christ followers understand the meaning and the purpose of this life. Now, if you don't know the purpose of life, what do you do? I'm going to tell you a few things people in this world do. One thing is they try to make up their own purpose. I mean, this is basically existentialism. is a big word for you. It just basically says you're trying to figure out some sort of a meaning for life. Some people say that the whole purpose of life is just to stay alive. Doesn't seem like much of a purpose. I guess we'd call that survivalism. There are some people who say that the purpose of life is to perpetuate life. I'm going to quote one of the renowned theologians. Uh, he's a rapper. His name is Ice-T. <laughs> Ice-T said, the reason we're here is to reproduce, man. Chill out and reproduce. Keep the species alive. We've got to move him into a seminary someplace, huh? And then there are people who say that the purpose of life is to spend your life trying to find the purpose of life. Now, quite honestly, none of that supplies us with any answer, but that's what a lot of people do. In fact, I think some of you probably do that, but you don't use philosophical terms like existentialism or, or survivalism or whatever. Instead, if we asked you the purpose of life, you'd start out with these words, I'm into. I'm into politics. I'm into sports. I'm really into redecorating. I'm really into, into collecting certain things. I got all these little doodads I put all over my house. I'm, I'm really into making money. And see, that, that for some people is their whole purpose of life. What they're trying to do is to create something to give their life meaning and purpose. Now, there are some other people who say, well, there's really no purpose to life, so let's just escape life. That's called hedonism. You try to find some pain, some pleasure that dulls the pain so you don't actually have to deal with life the next day. Now, you can do some legal things like go to Disneyland or watch TV, or you can do some illegal things like take drugs or whatever, but all it is is a way to escape a life that seems to have no meaning. And again, man, I just look at that and I go, man, that really bums me out. See, there's a third option, and, and you, you're probably hoping I was coming up with something good yet today. This is something that I would highly recommend to you, and that is just plain simple to figure out what the purpose of life is. And here is some really good news. This book tells you. 
The Bible is very, very clear about the purpose of life. I mean, if somebody came up to you and say, why do you exist? What's your purpose? Why are you here beyond taking up space <coughs> and maybe wasting some other people's oxygen? Why are you here? The Bible does not leave us any doubt. What is the purpose of our life? You can find it in the book of Ephesians. In Ephesians chapter 1, verses 4 and 5, and I'm going to read this to you from the New Living Translation. But listen carefully. Here's the purpose to our life. If we're, we call ourselves Christ followers. It says, even before he made the world, understand? even before he made the world, God loved us and chose us in Christ to be holy and without fault in his eyes. God decided in advance, remember that's before he even thought about the world, but God decided in advance to adopt us into his own family by bringing us to himself through Jesus Christ. This is what he wanted to do, and it gave him great pleasure. Now you go back and meditate on that, Ephesians 1, 4, and 5. I don't care whether you do that in the King James, whether you do that in the NIV, whether you do that in the KGV, which is Kolb's general version of the Bible, whatever version you want to use, go back and meditate on that. And it's going to tell you the same thing over and over. Before God ever be even thought about creating this world, he had you on his mind. I'm talking about you. He had you on his mind. You know, you. He had you on his mind. Carrie, he had you on his mind before he ever thought about the world. That's how great God is. He had you on his mind, and his unchanging plan, it says, his purpose was what? His purpose has always been to adopt you like he did Alexandria today, his purpose before she was ever thought of by mom and dad, before this world was ever created, God had in mind to choose Alexandria Rose to adopt into his own family by sending Jesus Christ to die on the cross for us. Now to that I say, whoa, <laughs> what a purpose, what a purpose that God made you to be part of his family. I think that's really cool. He made you, Nancy, to have a relationship with him. He had you, Wayne, in mind before the creation of this world to love him and to be loved back by him. And guess what? If you don't get this, if you never develop a deep, loving relationship with God through Jesus while you're here on earth, you are in deep weeds. You have missed the entire point of life. See, here's the purpose for all of us. I don't care how old you are, whether you're a little baby or whether you're a little advanced in years. God put you on this earth for a purpose. He put you here to prepare you for what's coming next. You get that? Here's your purpose. He put you here on this earth to prepare you for what's coming next. In other words, this is just dress rehearsal. What we're doing here this morning with worship, this is only preschool. This is only kindergarten. This is to get us ready for what we're going to do elsewhere someday. This is the warm-up act for eternity. So what do you do during this time? I just want to end with giving you four things pretty quick. The very first thing I would suggest that we all do, if this is why we're here, is to get us ready to go there. The first one is really kind of a no-brainer. It's this. We need to get to know Jesus really, really well. 
That's kind of a no-brainer, but we need to really get to know Jesus. We need to establish a living, loving, lasting love affair, if you will, with God's Son, Jesus. I remember a few years ago, I actually used that word. Do we ought to have a love affair with Jesus? I remember a young girl, high school age, came up to me afterwards, and she said, did you say a love affair with Jesus? I said, yeah. She says, I got to thinking, man, if I showed as much love and attention and affection to Jesus as I do to, then she turned around, she pointed to this guy slouched against the wall, him. <laughs> that would really be, that'd really be great. I said, there you go. Try it. The Bible says to all who receive him, receive Jesus, Jesus gives the right to become or to be called children of God. Now, I want you to understand, not everybody is a child of God. It's only those people who receive Jesus as Lord and Savior. Now, how do I establish that living, lasting, loving, long-term relationship with God through Jesus? If that's one of my purposes in life, how do I go about doing that? Well, I, I'd suggest you, you do it the, any, the way you do any relationship. I mean, you've got a boyfriend, a girlfriend, a husband, a wife, son, or whatever. You want to have a good relationship with them. One thing you're going to do is spend time with them, and the second thing you're going to do is talk to them. How about doing that with Jesus? How do you spend time with Jesus? Well, here we are, folks. Here's one way. It's called worship. Another way is to grab your Bible and, and read his love letter to you. My wife used to write me love letters. You know that? I think she still got them. I think I used to write love letters to me. Those are the ones she kept. I mean, those are kind of interesting. But here's God's love letter to you. Read it. Talk to him. He wants to listen to you. What's that called? It's called prayer. So the first thing I'm going to do to get myself ready for the next place is I'm going to get to know Jesus as best as I can. Here's the second thing. I get to know Jesus in a second. I'm going to use all of my time in view of eternity. See, time is our most precious resource. You can always get more money, but you're never going to get more time. You can't make time. You can't borrow time. You can't save time. You can't extend time. All you can do is use time. And guess what? I don't know, if, unless you've got a magic watch, we all got the same amount of time. It's called 168 hours a week. And if you don't learn how to manage your time well, you can't manage anything else because, quite honestly, your time is your life. One of Satan's great strategies, I told you before, we're in a fight. We're in a spiritual struggle. One of Satan's great strategies to get, is to get you so busy doing unimportant things. And guess what? Even some church work is kind of a relatively unimportant activity. You can get us so wound up in stuff that we never really have time to do what we ought to be doing. Now, I have said this for years. Uh, Satan doesn't have to make me sin. I'm, but I, what I've learned is this. If Satan can't make me bad, he will certainly make me busy. Acts 20, verse 24. Life is worth nothing unless I use it for doing the work assigned me in the Lord Jesus. You get that? There's no purpose if I'm not doing what God prepared in advance for me to do. You've got to use your time in view of eternity. Now, how much of what we're doing, how much of what you're doing is going to really make any difference in five years or ten years or twenty years? How would you use your life in view, your time in view of eternity? 
How would that change your worship life, both as a congregation, as an, as an individual? I think it says a lot about it. What about your evangelistic efforts as a church, and as an individual, sharing the love of Jesus with other people and saying, yeah, y'all come to my church. Come on, you know, hear about the love of Jesus. Find about a purpose in life. I mean, how about the time you spend in discipleship where you kind of come alongside another person and say, you know, we got our feet aimed in the right direction. It's towards the cross. How can I help you move forward? I want to disciple you and be discipled by somebody else. What does it say about our fellowship, individually and collectively? Now, fellowship, you know, my goofy definition is always it's two fellows on the same ship. It does, we're all in the same boat together. We're going in the same direction for the same purpose. We ought to get to kind of like each other, don't you suppose? Nothing more miserable than going on a cruise with people you don't like or who don't like you. But guess what? Some churches do that Sunday after Sunday. I say, folks, get over it. Build a bridge, get over it. Learn to love the people that are in the boat with you. They're going in the same direction. You're going to spend eternity with them anyway. Learn to love them here. Maybe you ought to jolly up a little bit, too, and learn to be lovable. Just a thought. Spend your time in ministry. Gosh, there's so many things you could be doing. I even hate to say this because my aunt's going to listen to this sermon on the web. <laughs> but my aunt listened to last Sunday's sermon. And she was ready to kind of quit a ministry in her church. And she wrote us back and she says, I listened to your sermon, so I signed up to be a greeter one more year. <laughs> Now, i got to tell you, my aunt, my aunt is a, a wonderful, fun-loving person, and she's, she's really a, a great person to be a greeter at any church. She'll really make you feel welcome. But I had a letter from another friend of mine the other day. He, he said, finally, I get to retire. I wrote him back, and I said, retirement is not in the Christian's vocabulary. Reposition yourself. Find some other place to work in God's kingdom. Now, let me get on to number three, or we'll be here all day. I, I, I need to love Jesus. I need to use my time. But number three, I need to use my talents in a view of eternity. Last week I gave you 12 reasons, you know, why you ought to give your life to service. I'm not talking about mission work. I'm talking about service, just doing something for somebody else in the name of Jesus, whether you get anything out of it or not. In 1 Corinthians 6.20 it says, use every part of your body to give glory back to God. Now, there's a big misconception that a lot of Christians have about heaven. Some of you think that when you get to heaven someday, all you're going to do is kick back, sit on a cloud in your white robe, and strum your harp. I don't find that in here. And I hate to burst anybody's bubble, but you're not going to be an angel someday either. You're not an angel down here. You know, you're not going to be an angel in heaven. I mean, angels are angels and people are people. So what are you going to do when you get to heaven someday? You ever think about that? What are you going to do in heaven? Now, I, got, I got news for you. God has plans for you to serve in heaven. God has plans for you to work in heaven. You go, work? Well, guess what? Work was fun for Adam and Eve before sin came in the world. What's heaven is without sin. You're going to get to work up there again. And so what is God doing? He's giving you opportunities right now to find out what you're really good at so he knows what he's going to have you do up in heaven. I mean, you're not going to take any money to heaven. You're not going to take any of your possessions to heaven. I have never seen a U-Haul trailer in a funeral procession. You're not going to take it with you. You can't take your Bible, your best pair of socks, your best boots or whatever. You can't take that to heaven. What are you going to take to heaven? I'll tell you what you take to heaven. You're going to take your character, 
and you're going to take your skills. You're going to take who you are in Jesus, and you're going to take the gifts and the talents and abilities God has blessed you with. And God says to us right now, are you a son or daughter of mine? And we go, yes. He says, okay, now's the time to get ready. Get ready to serve. So the question is, are you doing anything right now using your talents for God? That's important because in the Bible, it's pretty clear that what we do on earth determines the job assignments we get in heaven. Wouldn't you kind of like to know what you're going to get to do up in heaven? I have a sneaking feeling I'm not going to be the main preacher. I have a feeling there would be a few people that have a few more important things to say than me, but, you know, I'd be happy with what the Bible says. It says it would be better to be, what, a gatekeeper in the house of the Lord? I, I wouldn't mind standing at the door and holding it open for people. I don't know if that's a, if that's a job in heaven. I'm just kind of looking forward to it. The Bible says this is dress rehearsal. Let's get ready to serve in heaven, too, by serving down here. Here's the fourth thing. I want to use my treasure in view of eternity. Yeah, a lot of people lately have been kind of watching the economy going into the tank, and they're asking themselves, what's the safest place to invest my money? Wayne, I know you're a financial planner, but I'm going to take your job this morning because I know the answer. You all came to the right place this morning. I'm going to tell you the best place to invest. And to do so, let me give you this illustration. Let's suppose that the United States Congress passes a law that sometimes in the, ne in the next 12 months, the Japanese yen is going to become the official American currency. No longer would we use dollars. Everybody has to use Japanese yen to buy things or sell things. Now, since the dollar is going to be worthless after this exchange, to make it fair to everybody, they're not going to tell you what the exact day of conversion actually is. You just know that sometimes in the next 12 months, all of a sudden you're going to have to start using Japanese yen and suddenly all of your dollars are going to be worthless. Now, if you knew that that was going to happen in the next 12 months, but you didn't know when it was going to happen, what would your strategy be? Well, if you got any brains at all, I'll tell you what you'd do. You'd take most of your American money right now and you'd turn it into Japanese yen. You might, which is going to, because your U.S. bucks are going to be worthless in 12 months. And you would probably keep a few American dollars back just to meet your daily needs until that time came. God tells us the exact same story in the Bible. Jesus says one day there's going to be this giant exchange. And only a fool would go through this life totally unprepared for what's going to be inevitable. Now, I don't want to burst your bubble, but I'm going, to, I'm going to tell you something. The mortality rate in America is 100%. I'm just telling you that unless the clouds crack, the sky parts, the horns blow, and the angels come, we're all going to die. Everybody in this room is terminal. It's just a matter of time. Tick, 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 tick. Tick. It's inevitable, folks. There's going to be an exchange date for all of us. In eternity, the wealth that you leave on earth is going to be worthless. The only way that what you have now can count in eternity is by beginning to convert it into the economy of heaven today. That's called storing up treasures for yourself in heaven. You want a great example of that? Read in 1 Timothy chapter 1. 
verses 16 and 17. It says, teach those who are rich in this world. Now, we don't think we're rich, but I can tell you, I'll take you to India. People would trade paychecks with you, even those of you who claim to be on fixed income. They'd trade, they'd trade with you. They'd take your salary for their 30 bucks a month, let you live on the street. You can complain about how you had a little hail damage to a shingle. Uh, but teach those who are rich in this world not to be proud and to not trust in their money, which is so unreliable. Their trust should be in God, who richly gives us all we need for our enjoyment. Tell them to use their money to do good. They should be rich in good works and generous to those in need, always being ready to share with others. By doing this, they will be storing up their treasure as good foundations for the future so that they may experience true life. Yeah, I'm really looking forward to that day, quite honestly because I think I've been spending a little bit of my time converting time and talent and treasure into the currents of eternity. And I just ask you, what, what bank are you using today? Are you banking in the world, or are you banking in heaven? You can't take it with you, but you can certainly send it on ahead. And how do you send it on ahead? You send it on ahead by investing it in people that are either going to heaven or that you hope will go to heaven someday. You know, one of the strangest things Jesus ever said in the Bible is Luke chapter 16, verse 9. He said, use worldly wealth to make friends who will welcome you into eternal dwellings. You go, what's that all about? Is he saying you can buy your way into heaven? Well, no, he's not doing it. Because you can't buy your way into heaven. What he is saying is the best strategy of investment here is to take your money and use it to help get people into heaven so that when you get up there, they're going to come up to you and say, hey, thanks a lot. Thanks a lot for investing in me. See, every time you give and you help a missionary win somebody to Jesus, you're investing, storing up treasures in heaven. Every time you help out some good Christian organization that helps bring people to heaven, you're storing up treasure in heaven. Every time you invest in your own local church and you help a church, whether they're putting together a program or building a new building or seating other ministries, you're helping people get into heaven. That's the best use of your money. I sometimes see these, you ever see these bumper stickers, you know, like on the back of these U-Haul, or not U-Haul, but travel trailers, and it says, we're spending our kids' inheritance. It seems funny, but you know, it's really, really sad. You know, I think, you know, if your whole life is investing in yourself, if your whole life is all wrapped up in doing nothing but investing in your children, or your career, or saving it all for retirement. I think we're missing the point. Because we were put here for a higher purpose than this. The wisest investment any of us could ever make is to tell God, I want to make the rest of my life count for eternity. And don't forget, you're all going to live in eternity in one place or the other. We call living in eternity with God heaven. And we call living in eternity without God, hell. It's my prayer that all of you today have established that relationship with Jesus, that you've started with step one and say, I want to have a purpose. I, I want to have a life. I want to have a reason for being. And, and, and if Jesus is the way it's going to get me there, I want him in my life today. And friends, you know, it's as simple as praying a prayer. It's as simple as saying, Jesus, I want to get to know you now. And I want you to be in my life now, and I want to follow your plan, and I want to follow your purpose, not just today, but for the rest of my life.
May God grant it for Jesus' sake. Amen. Before we gather our tithes and our offerings this morning, I want to just make a couple of quick announcements to you. Uh, one of which the uh, Dorothy O'Connell benefit meal, which is scheduled for next Sunday, has been postponed um, until a later date. You'll just have to pay attention to the worship folder for when that will be. But that uh, meal next, I think it's scheduled for next Sunday, is postponed. Um, the second thing I want to I let you know is I, I spoke with the Board of Elders <clears throat> a little bit, and after thinking about it and praying about it, uh, you know, since I've been here, we've had communion at, at practically every service, and we've talked about this. And what we're going to do starting in May is communion will be twice a month. It will be on the first Sunday and on the third Sunday of the month. And if you want to know the reason or the rationale why I picked the first and the third, uh, I could tell you I didn't have any. But it, <laughs> I kind of did because the third Sunday of the month of May is also Confirmation Sunday. And we know that as we welcome some new young people into church, it's a good time for them to be confirmed. If any of you have any questions or concerns about the change of that, I'd ask that you direct those comments, uh, not to the people in the parking lot, but direct those to me. I'd be glad to talk to you. I'd love to hear you know, anything you have to say, pro or con, about that. Well, as we gather our tithes and our offerings this morning, let's pray. Lord, as we bring our gifts to you, we are investing in eternity. We know we can't take it with us, but we know that we can send it on ahead because, Lord, when we get there the, someday, you know, we're going to look so forward to that great grand family reunion in the sky. Lord, thank you for drawing us into your family, but through the, through the power of the Holy Spirit and through the love of Jesus, in whose name we pray.